Well, this morning we are continuing our series through the book of First Thessalonians. And so I would encourage you to take your Bibles or your electronic devices and join me in First Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2. The title of our series is Upside Down. Uh, when the church was being planted in Thessalonica, Acts chapter 17 tells us the people in the city were upset because they accused Paul and his companions and those who were coming to faith in the town of Thessalonica of turning the world upside down. And as we've talked about, actually what they were doing was turning the world right side up. Because that's what Jesus does. He makes everything right. He takes the wrong and turns it into the right. This morning, before we jump into the passage, however, I want us to pause and have a word of prayer for our leaders and for our country. We're in a very crucial time in this land, and we're told in the Scriptures that we are to pray for our leaders, and so we want to take a moment and do that this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the living hope that we have. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Father, we are thankful today that you are the one who is in control that you rule and you reign from heaven, and you are the King of kings. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the salvation that we have in his name. And we thank you, Lord, for how he has worked in us. And now, Father, we are praying for our leaders on all levels of government. We pray this morning for our president, Joe Biden, we would pray, Father, that you would cause him to make decisions which will move to unify our country. We pray, Father, that you would help him to make decisions that will be based on righteousness and the principles from your word. Your word tells us that leaders' hearts are in your hand and you turn them whichever way you want. We would pray, Father, that you would give President Biden a heart to do that which is right and that which honors you. We pray, Father, for our leaders in the Congress. We would pray, Father, that you would give them a heart to pass laws that would honor the principles of your word. We would ask that there might be an end to partisan wrangling, Lord, that seems to go on and on and on. And we ask, Father, that we would have leaders that would have the best interests of the people and the country in mind. We pray, Father, for our leaders on a state level, for Governor DeWine and other leaders in Ohio, that you would help them to do that which is right. And we pray, Father, even for our local leaders, that you would give them wisdom in the decisions that they make. We pray for our law enforcement officials all over the land, Lord. We pray that you would protect them. We would pray, Father, that you would bring an end to a spirit of lawlessness, Lord, 
but that there might be laws that they might be respected and enforced. And Father, we pray that you would help us as your followers to recognize that we are citizens of two countries, citizens of America, but also citizens of heaven. And Father, help us to keep in mind that our highest allegiance is to you. And Father, we pray as well that you would help us to stay focused on the work that you've given to us as a church to do, that we might spread the gospel and disciple men and women and children, that they might trust in you and honor you and serve you. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the last few years, we have seen all kinds of headlines and stories about individuals who are unaccountable, even though there are those in place that they're supposed to be accountable to. They've been unaccountable. Uh, We've seen stories of individuals who have uh, sexually abused others and those who have abused children, and stories about some of them that they have escaped judgment simply because the statute of limitation has run out on their crimes. We've seen stories about individuals who have not honored their marriage vows, but have had multiple affairs. Stories of people who have a pattern in their life of drunkenness. People who have mishandled money. People who are deceiving others. No, I'm not talking about our politicians this morning. I'm talking about leaders in the evangelical church. We have been bombarded with stories of celebrity pastors and of megachurch pastors and leaders of parachurch organizations committing these offenses. This ought not to be the case. We see a contrast in the ministry of the Apostle Paul and how he ministered. We've entitled the message this morning, Effective Discipleship. I want us to see the things that the Apostle Paul did and how he behaved and then how it rubbed off on the church in Thessalonica. If we go back to the passage that we looked at last week, Uh, In the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says in verse 2 that he and his companions were shamefully treated at Philippi. Paul went to Thessalonica after having ministered in Philippi. And if you know the story from the book of Acts of the city of Philippi and when Paul went there, you'll know that Paul was beaten there. And Paul was cast in jail there. And Paul was mistreated. And so he leaves Philippi and he goes over to the city of Thessalonica. Now that was about a year before this book was written. Uh, Paul, from our best accounts, we believe that he was actually in the city of Thessalonica somewhere between two to six months. And this letter that he's writing is now a year after he left Thessalonica, and he's writing back to them. He goes on and he talks about at the end of verse 2 that there was much conflict. 
that had taken place, not only in Philippi, but also in Thessalonica. He goes on and says in verse 3, he says, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. See, the Apostle Paul is defending himself against charges that are being brought against him. And Paul says, uh, there was much conflict, but our appeal did not spring from some wrong motives on our part or any impurity. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, for we never came with words of flattery. Didn't try to just build you up with words and tell you what you would want to hear. But he says, and as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. The Apostle Paul was not there to take advantage of people financially. He goes on in verse 6 and said, nor did we seek glory from people. Our purpose was not for glory for us. It says in verse 7, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Uh, catch that picture of how Paul ministered there. He says, I ministered to you, we ministered to you, like a nursing mother takes care of her child. Now, he's going to go on in our passage this morning, beginning with verse 9, and talking about how he ministered there. And so in verse 9, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we not, might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul appeals to them and says, you remember. Remember how we were when we were there with you. He says, first of all, remember that we labored and toiled. Now, the words labored and toiled, when you put them together, it means to work to the point of weariness. We worked until we were completely worn out. Remember that, Paul says. Remember also, we were not a burden to you. Paul said we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. The word for burden means to weigh down, to put a heavy load on someone, uh, to put a burden upon them that they're not able to bear. Paul said, we were not a burden to you. Matter of fact, he said, we work night and day. The Apostle Paul, many times in his ministry, so as to not be a burden to churches, would work in his trade. The Apostle Paul was a tent maker. Actually, in the, the Jewish culture then, every boy was required to have a trade. Every child was required to be able to do something that they might be able to support themselves in the future. That's a good idea, parents, for your children to have a means that they will be able to support you. If you don't want them still living with you, as the case is in many homes now, to when they're 40 or 50 years old, it's good that they have a trade, something that they can do. 
And just let me go down on a rabbit trail just for a second. You need to strongly encourage them. And also, young people, if you're in college, I encourage you to get a degree in something that will help you to get a job. There are all kinds of degrees that people have in college, and I wonder, what in the world are they ever going to do with that degree? Uh, you know, one of my favorite degrees in that respect are all the individuals that are getting degrees in drama. You know, they're going to be the next star in Hollywood. Uh, they're going to be the next star uh, in New York City. Well, just go visit those places and see how all these promising actors and actresses are waiting tables. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with waiting tables. That's great, but uh, I question why you would go to school for four extra years I don't know of any college that's offering a degree in waiting tables. Uh, maybe someone is. But I just encourage your children that they need to find out what God has gifted them in and how he has enabled them, but help them to pursue something that will help them to be employed. Or else don't complain when they never leave home. Uh, when, when you and your wife are, are sitting around and say, boy, we'd like to have some time together and that. I wish Junior would move out. Well, maybe when he retires, he'll be ready to move out. So, uh, retires from what? I don't know. Okay, let's get off that and let's go back to this. Paul says he's not got, he was not a burden when he was there with them. And, and that's consistent with what Jesus said. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are labor, and all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you what? More burdens? No. I'll give you rest. Paul is setting that example. He also says that you remember that we proclaimed the gospel of God. The gospel of God. Whenever you hear that word gospel, it means good news. And we should ask the question, good news about what? And Paul says, the good news, we proclaim to you the good news about God. What is that good news? That God loved the world and gave his only son for the world. That whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The good news of the gospel that we proclaim, that Christ was the Messiah. That's what the word Christ means, the anointed one, the Messiah. That he lived a sinless life, that he died, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And through belief in him, we are saved. That is the gospel of God that we proclaim and Paul says, you remember that we proclaim that. He goes on in verse 10, and he says, you are witnesses. Look at verse 10. You are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. How did Paul behave among them? He was holy. He was righteous. And he was blameless. No one could bring anything to charge Paul with wrongdoing. He says, and you are the witnesses of how I behaved with you. 
we were holy and righteous and set that example for you. See, discipleship is more than filling the head. Discipleship is helping to teach people to put in practice that which they learn from the Word of God. Remember, even in the Great Commission, we are told to go and disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them, and many people stop there, but it says, Jesus said, and teaching them to obey all things whatsoever I've commanded you. It's putting them into practice. And the Apostle Paul, as a master discipler, is putting into practice what he wants them to put into practice. Paul can say, follow what I do, not just what I say. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing. And he says, you're witnesses of that. He goes on and says, you know, in verses 11 and 12, look what he says. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For you know that we treated you like a father. Now earlier we saw that the Apostle Paul said among them that he treated them like a nursing mother. Well now he says we also treated you like a father. See, within the home, there are different roles for the father and for the mother. God has ordained that the father should be the head of the home. The father is responsible for that which happens within the home. Father and mother are to work together. But the role of the mother is more of a nurturing role. The role of the father is the accountability role. Now, I'm not saying we're not letting wives off the hook with that. You work together as a team. But that's how the primary responsibility of the design that comes from God. So when he pictures the mother, he pictures her, he says, we minister like a mother, like a nursing mother, and how the mother uh, dotes over the young child. Well, how about the father? Paul says that like a father, we exhorted, encouraged, and charged you. Uh, Exhorted. We spoke to you, telling you the way that you need to go. We encouraged you. We came alongside you to put courage into your heart to do the right things. And we charged you. We told you what you need to be doing. Paul said, we did that with you like a father would do that. I remember in my ministry, when I was a much younger pastor, there was an evangelist who had a great impact in my life. He came to the church that I grew up in when I was just a a boy, and he preached there, and I was just impressed with his. He was a fiery Irish evangelist, and his style of encouraging people and preaching God's Word just really impressed me. Later on, as a young pastor, I had several occasions to be with him and have him to come and to spend a week at the churches that I was pastoring, as he would come and encourage. 
I remember the last time that I saw him. He pulled me aside. Uh, his wife and, and Barb were together. The four of us were together. But he pulled me out, aside and he says, come with me for a second. And when we were in private, he says, Butch, I need to charge you. You need to carry on. I don't have many days that are left before me. I don't know when God is going to call me home. But there have to be those who will continue to preach the Word of God and to proclaim it without compromise. Those who are willing to stand up. And he charged me. There are not many doing that in our world. And you have to do this. I've never forgotten that. And I remember the night that I learned that he had gone home to be with the Lord. As I was in my bed that night praying to God, I can remember crying out to God and saying, Oh Lord, give me a double portion of the Spirit that was upon Hugh Horner. Help me, Lord, that I might be faithful to the charge that he gave to me. And it is my desire to finish my ministry by being faithful to that charge. See, when we're discipling other individuals, there are times we need to charge them and say, this is what you need to do using the gifts and abilities that God has given to you. Paul said, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, and we charged you. Charge them to do what? To walk worthy. To walk worthy of God. Let that phrase kind of sink in to our hearts this morning. I would encourage you to contemplate this week. What does it mean to walk worthy of God? Walk worthy of Him. I have an individual that's in my life and he signs all of the emails or texts that he sends to me with just those words, walk worthy. Walk worthy. That's what Paul is telling us to do, to walk worthy of our Savior. He goes on in verse 13, and here we see a little bit of a shift. Paul is going to talk about no longer this is what we have done, though there'll be a little bit of that, but to the focus on what they were doing there as a church. Look at verse 13, and it says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of of God. You received the word of God. And when they received it, Paul says, you received it as it really is. This is God's word, not man's word. This book did not come about just by human endeavor, but holy men of God wrote as the Spirit of God moved them. And when we correctly interpret this book, and when we in, 
rightly divide this word and proclaim it, we are not speaking the words of men, we're speaking the words of God. And Paul said, you received the word of God. For our lives to change, we must receive the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, we must receive it. This book that we have before us is not just man's opinion. This book is God's word. And we revere it, and we accept it. He goes on then in verse 14, and he says this, For you, brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You became imitators of the churches. Now, the word for imitator means you became like them. It's actually a word that they would use of someone who was making a sculpture. They do it so it would look just like the individual uh, that they're portraying. It's also used of the word that when they would make a painting of someone, that it was to look like them. That's an imitation of them. We would say the same thing today with a photograph. It would be this word that was used, a, a representation of them that looks like them. And he says, you were imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You have become, as believers there in Thessalonica, just like those believers in those churches in Judea. You're just like them. You look like them. Uh, have you noticed how you can go someplace else, whether it's in our country or even outside our country, and find other believers in Christ and find that you have things in common? find that you have behaviors that are the same. Why? Because there is a unity among all believers in Christ. Because each and every true believer has the Spirit of God living inside him. And I've had experiences where I'm with a big group of people and I'll just feel drawn to a couple of those individuals. And what do I find out later? They share the love for the Savior that I have. And the Apostle Paul is saying here to those in Thessalonica, this is a church that gets praised for their behavior. He says, you've become just like the, the church that is in Judea, and you act the same way. And as a result, they're going to experience some of the same things. Because notice what he says, verse, middle of verse 14, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. You guys look alike because you act alike because you are both suffering. Just as the Jews persecuted the followers of Jesus now the people in Thessalonica who don't like their world being turned upside down are persecuting you. And so Paul then goes on to talk about what those, believe, those non-believers in Judea did and what they were doing. Verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. 
right? Those people in Judea, Jerusalem is in Judea. Judea is the region around Jerusalem. What did they do? They killed the Lord Jesus. They put him to death. And they killed the prophets. Remember, Jesus would challenge the religious leaders. Which of the prophets did you not put to death? Which ones didn't you stone? Tell me, who did you listen to of the prophets? They didn't. He says, they have killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. Paul was driven out. The Christians were driven by persecution in that region of Judea to go into the world with the gospel. It says, and displease God. What they're doing, they are displeasing God. Do you realize that there are many people in our world who are opposed to Christianity and who will persecute Christians who really think they're doing it in the name of God? They think they're pleasing God when they are actually displeasing Him. And he says, and oppose all mankind. They're opposed to all mankind. Well, what does he mean that they're opposed to all mankind? He explains it to us. He says, they oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Paul says, we are bringing the message of salvation. We are taking it out to the world, even as Jesus commanded us to do. But our enemies oppose all individuals because they don't want them to put faith and trust in Christ and follow him. So they're the enemies of the souls of all those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so Paul says concerning them, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Now actually those two words at the end, at last, are a translation of a word that can also mean completely or forever. And that's actually what I think it means. I don't believe that the wrath of God had totally come on them at that point in time. Matter of fact, at the end of chapter 1, Paul will talk about the wrath that is to come. But those who do not follow Jesus Christ as Savior, there is a wrath that is coming. And there's coming a time when God is going to get fed up with the unrighteousness in our world. And he's going to say it's enough. And he's going to call his church up to meet him in the air. And then he's going to pour his wrath out on this earth. And I believe that's what Paul is referring to here. That his wrath is going to be pulled out completely or in full. And for those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it is poured out upon them forever. That's why it was so urgent for the Apostle Paul to go into the world, proclaim the gospel, so that people would put their faith and trust in Jesus. And he kept on, even when he was opposed. And he encouraged the believers in Thessalonica to continue on with their work. This is a picture 
of effective discipleship passed on from Paul to those in Thessalonica for them to then pass it on to others. His name was Fritz Chrysler. He was a world-famous violinist who passed away in 1962. He earned a fortune from his concerts and from his compositions. But he was a man who generously gave away most of the money that he earned. On one of his trips, he discovered an exquisite violin that was for sale, and he wanted to buy it. But because of his practice of giving away his his money, he had to save enough money to be able to buy the violin. And so he did. And he went back to the owner of the violin to purchase it and found that the owner of the violin had sold it just a couple of days before. He was dismayed. But he asked the person who had sold the violin, can you tell me the name of the person who bought it so I can go to him and see if he might be willing to sell it to me? So he did. He tracked down the individual, went to the individual's home, and the individual was not interested in selling the violin. He said, this is now one of my prized possessions, and I plan to put it in a case so that others can come and see it. Fritz Chrysler was disappointed, and he turned to leave, and then he had an idea. He said to the new owner of the violin, could I play the instrument once more before it is consigned to silence in a case? And the owner granted him that opportunity. So he took the violin and he began to play it. And he played several pieces and just filled the room with marvelous music. When he stopped, the new owner of the violin was overcome with emotions. And he said to Fritz Chrysler, I have no right to keep that to myself. It's yours, Mr. Chrysler. Take it into the world and let people hear it. You know, we have something more valuable than a violin. We have the very message of God, the message that brings salvation. And we are to take it into all the world so that all mankind hears the message of Jesus so that they have the opportunity to put their faith and trust in him and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. Help us, Father, that we will be faithful disciples and we will be faithful disciples that we might go into the world proclaiming this message of Jesus. For this we pray in his name. Amen.